There you go. Brothers and sisters, it's that time again. It's time for everybody's favorite lo-fi lecture series, lo-fi lecture series. Lo-fi lecture series, say it three times and it's real. Meaning crisis and chill. With Viveki, John, and Akira the Dom. Strap in tight. If you're listening live, smash that like, share that link. Jump up and down on the table. If you want the replay and you want to get straight into the action, there will be a timestamp in the description. Description. <laughs> Meaning crisis and chill.
Yo, what's up, baby? Welcome to the show. This is Akira the Don, your friendly neighborhood wave lord. Artist, DJ, producer, architect of the Beating Wave universe. Recipient. Soon to be recipient of a finely tooled spiel with which to open these broadcasts. It's ridiculous I don't yet have one. I should say exactly the same thing every time. But uh, shit, then it'd be really slick. Slick. Slick! Speaking of slick, who was here this morning? Feels like a long time ago now, but I do believe this morning was was a real good one. I believe it was. I have a vague recollection of uh, enjoying it thoroughly. Thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly. Shouts out to everyone locked in life. 2076 says Akira just dropping that rare knowledge as per usual. You know me. We in here regulating vibes and dropping more gems than a butterfingered watchmaker. Feels like it works. Feels like it works. What up, Matthew Coe? What up, Shecky Paver? What up, Lauren Smith? What up, Brugham? Sajitaj, Jean McGarvey, Andre P, the whole squad. Smash that like. Let's get everybody in here. We've got a we've got a lo-fi lecture to lecture lo-fi. We got a lecture to lo-fi. We're lo-fiing a lecture. Feels like it works. What's that you say? Feels like it works? Yeah, I said feels like it works. I said it feels like it works. And if you don't know what that reference is to, it's a reference to a beloved Meaning Wave classic, and I might just play it right now. Make some noise for Brother Scott Adams. User interface for reality. Ching ching. All right, at long last, the user interface for reality. Some of these things you're going to say, hey. Hey. I've heard about those. Heard about those. First, you must accept the frame, frame. at least as a filter, that there could be a subjective reality and that you can, can manipulate it. You should accept that systems work better than goals. People are telling me every day that they implemented systems and it changed their life. This is one of the biggest buttons on the interface for life. If you don't like where you are and you want to go somewhere else, learn how to build systems for everything from your diet to your career to your social life, fitness, everything. The idea that if you intelligently add new talents, you become not just a little bit better, but exponentially better because talents really explode your capability and your options. So this is one of the biggest, biggest buttons on the interface to reality. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. The interface to reality. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. Affirmations, the idea of writing down or visualizing your goals, 
seems to be something that gives you the impression that it works. And I say that very carefully. Does it work? Do affirmations change reality? I don't know. I don't know. I can tell you that when I've used them, the results I've gotten don't seem like anything could have been hmm. natural. Hmm. I cured an incurable voice problem. I had ridiculous stock market luck when I used the affirmations. My career, as I told you, is just crazy. The interface to reality. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. The interface to reality. It feels like it works. But I'm not going to tell you it does. If it feels like it works, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. If it feels like it works, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. The interface to reality. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. It feels like it works. The interface to reality. It feels like it works. But I'm not going to tell you it does. It feels like it works. You see these as like Feels like it works. Such a chair says, looks like we're on Star Trek. Yeah. I'm a spaceman. This is my spaceship. Welcome to the show. Pew, pew. Fight. Shouts out everybody, how you're feeling out there? David says decentralized. Good point, well made. going with this thing before we go in with this thing this beautiful uh, live lecture lo-fi series I can't believe by the way I can't believe but we're on number 12 we're on number 12 we've done 12 of these that's quite a lot that's quite a lot of these these uh, lo-fi lectures to have done pretty good pretty good what up D-Man says ETH to the moon maximum doinkage Yo, how's everybody stunks? What's the st what's stunks report? Stunks report, what's cracking? XX Maddox says keep doing it. Walking more poets says doge. Sergio says says corollary. If it feels like it doesn't work, then change your filter. Or do something else. 
<laughs> yeah. Angie Pullman says, how many individuals have produced enough bodies of work to have their own top 50? Can we just appreciate the output? Hey, that's a good point. That's a great point. Let's appreciate the output. Hello, B. Athena. Happy birthday week. Let's appreciate the output. I was working on, on next month's album today. Oh, boy. So, like, the song I was working on yesterday was that, that incredible sort of... Uh, post-synthwave symphony. I was working on a couple today. And it's funny, you know, yesterday's was just the sublimely ridiculous, just a song so big and epic and, and huge that, that it crashed my, uh, my computer. And my computer is the kind of computer that could run space missions, you know? Today's was the opposite. Today's was just absolutely beautiful in its simplicity. Today's was a track, uh, the nature of its composition is the most simple track I've done in years and years and years. And that wasn't planned, that wasn't deliberate. It's just wonderful how life goes sometimes. Yeah! Athena says of the Meaning Crisis series, there's like 30 lessons in total, isn't there? I'm, I don't know actually. How many are there? I don't know, I don't know. There's a couple, Biafina, there's a couple, I'll tell you that much, there's a couple. And we're gonna get into it. We're gonna get into it. But before we get into it, we have to do the international high five, and for the international high five today, I got a question for you, M-A-Z. I got a question for you. Where on God's green earth are you? And if you could time travel and meet 16-year-old you, what would you tell them? What would you tell 16-year-old you if you could time travel and go say what's up? Well, YouTube Hero Alex says Twitch chat is on the screen. Um, that's weird. I thought this chat was supposed to have both chat rooms in it. Oh, well. Thank you for letting me know. If you're listening on the podcast, that doesn't mean anything to you, does it? We have a visual interface. Did you know that? Podcast people, we have a visual interface. It's really quite glorious. It appears that I am in a spaceship. How about that? I know it sounds like I'm in a spaceship too. It also looks like I'm in one. Very cool. Cyclops924, top of the mountains, USA. Orinoco Wellington says, you are too cool. You are breathtaking. Sergitej, pull-ups in the basement. Don't listen to them. Good advice. Matthew Coat, Hartford CT. I'd say to myself that you massa. Cut your damn hair, you hippie. Cyclops, 94. I would tell myself that the path I'm on is the right path. Shecky Pavel, Caddy, you will meet the dream wife. D-Man, Tri-State, don't trade that holograph Charizard, dummy. Very good advice. Zach Sowers of Boston, Massachusetts. I'd tell 16-year-old me to stop drinking and smoking dope every day and not lurk 4chan for hours at a time. <laughs> Why though? Why though? Isn't that where, where, the, where a man is forged? Are those not the fires in which a, a man is, is forged, no? Okay. This superconductor says ATD is a beast. Grr. 
Grr, that's what I say. It's that Ruggermuck Zero up in the Great West White North. What's up, Great White North? Lawrence Smith outside Portland, Oregon. I would tell myself to drop the attitude. Pick up a book. Got 10 years off the process. 10 years of attitude, huh? Andrew Pullman, I will tell myself that Meaning Wave will exist. Good point. Hold tight, it's gonna be okay. Meaning Wave will exist. David Howard, Delaware, disability equals freedom. Simple but effective. Yeah. Cindy Bailey, Marino Valley, let go, you can't control everything. Loosen up, but speak up for yourself. Quite right too. 2076, there are better fires. Robert Easley, I would tell my 16-year-old self to stop selling yourself short. Orinoco Wellington says, drop bad people soon. Walking Mall Park, Virginia, I would tell 16-year-old me to take all of the Christmas cash I was saving for college and go start a business, or two, or 20. Hey, you know, if it was now, you could tell yourself to start um, a college business. They're all, they're all done. R.I.P. 2076, currently in Flan Flan, seems to be a new land of promise. What's new land of promise? Andrew Pullman, buy Bitcoin. Solid advice for 16-year-old you. Presuming 16-year-old you, uh, you know, was around in the time of such things. Zachary Brooks, Mark FMI, I would tell me to grow up and look for what gives you meaning. Someone just said they were in Massachusetts, didn't they? Uh, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts, just decriminalized psychedelics. If that isn't a sign of the neo-psychedelic age that your boy, the Don, has been predicting to uh, kick off in February 2021. I don't know what is. February 2021. Cambridge, Massachusetts decriminalizes psychedelics. to be determined. Could be Austin, Texas, could be New Hampshire, most certainly not in the mire of status quo. Alan Brent just rocking some new Marcus merch. Boom. Sure, Akira from NZ. Zenzi me New Zealand. Is this your fault, Alan Brett? Alan Brent. I had news today, news from the podcast charts of New Zealand. Where was it? News from the podcast charts of New Zealand. Congratulations, the Akira the Dawn podcast is now ranked number 177 on the Apple Podcast Music Chart in New Zealand. 177. Shouts out to New Zealand, baby. And uh, if you're one of those listeners in New Zealand locked in right now, well, this is for you. I'm going to play you a, a rare thing. Oh, yeah, international high five. <laughs> Hi. Hi. 
Raise it up. Three, two, one. Hi. Wow, wow. Shouts out to those unreleased Akira the Dawn beats that are really great. Unreleased Akira the Dawn classical beats. Uh, commissioned by Taco Bell. <laughs> all right, all right, I think we're ready. I think we're ready. I think that's enough ado. How about you? Who's ready for Meaning Crisis and Chill 12, Higher States of Consciousness, Part 2? Welcome back to Awakening from Meaning Crisis. So, we have been engaged in a very long discussion because we're talking about a topic that is central about uh, the possibility of uh, enlightenment and to try and make that something plausibly accessible to us uh, rather than something wrapped and shrouded in mesmeric mystique. Instead, we've been trying to understand this from a cognitive science perspective that could tell us why these higher states of consciousness might in fact provide a means for the radical self-transformation, self-transcendence, enhanced inner peace and connectedness to reality 
that are the central legacy of the Axial Age Revolution and that are still needed today, even if we no longer believe in the mythology of the Axial Age religions and philosophies. How do we find a place to vouchsafe the value, the precious value that these states can confer on lives in terms of meaning and transcendence when we no longer can understand and articulate and legitimate that in terms of a two-world mythology. So if you remember, we had been discussing the properties of these higher states of consciousness. We had discussed what the world is like, it's bright, comprehensive and detailed, intricate and interesting, the world in a grain of sand. It's highly intelligible, it's beautiful, and behind it is a pervasive sense of oneness. The self that is resonating with that world in the higher state of consciousness is a self deeply at peace. Like in Plato's description of Anagage. It's experiencing joy. It's experiencing a kind of deep remembrance, sati, of the being mode. It's true and authentic self. It is losing its egocentrism. We talked about the connectedness between the self and the world as one so intimate, so flowing, so anagogic that the sense of participation and conformity is achieving a sense of identity, deep and profound, being at one with the oneness. But that it is so profound that it is almost always described as ineffable. We then took a look at what might be going on in these states, because we're trying to remember, we're trying to give a descriptively adequate and a prescriptively adequate account. We took a look at the continuity hypothesis, that they're the same machinery that's at work in our everyday experience of the fluency of reading into moments of insight, into the insight cascades of flow, and then being exapted even more into mystical experience. And then some of those mystical experiences bring about a quantum change. Right? They bring about a deep transformative experience. And I suggested to you, I proposed to you, that what's going on in these higher states of consciousness is something like a state of flow, but that the skill, the expertise that is flowing is not this particular skill of rock climbing or being a martial artist or playing jazz. It's the skill, the domain general skill of getting an optimal grip on the world. And so what's happening is people are getting a flow state in their ability to optimally grip on the world. This connection to the machinery of insight helps to explain why disruptive strategies are used in order to try and bring about the higher states of consciousness because disruptive strategies are so central to trying to create insight. They're both naturally disruptive strategies and you can acquire them through mindfulness psychotechnologies. We were examining what these disruptive strategies do. They massively increase variation in your processing 
and that reveals invariance, both good invariance, you get to see more of the real patterns that are remaining unchanged through all the variation. That's what science does. Across all of their variations, we try to find the real patterns that are invariant. What science does is increase the variation. We run experience, experiments. We increase the variation. We do all kinds of manipulations and increased variations to try and find what remains invariant because we take that to point to us, right? Point out to us what is more real. That's what you're doing. But it also, right, so it's opening up the invariance of the world. You're using the flow state's capacity for enhanced implicit processing, implicit learning of complex patterns, tracking of causal patterns to do that. But it's also picking up on the bad invariance. It's picking up on, right, it's helping to reveal all the ways in which you are systematically misframing. So that like a child going through a developmental stage, and I would point to you to the work of my uh, former student, friend, colleague, Jensen Kim, for this idea of development as a systematic form of insight. Something that he and I are working on together. Like a, ch like a child going through a developmental stage, realizing not just this error or that error, but a systematicity in the way that they're misframing reality and finding a nexus, a point of where the insight right, is not just an intervention in this problem, but in a whole class and type of problems. A developmental change of seeing through illusion into reality that is so central to wisdom is also being afforded by these higher states. What about the decentering that's so central to both flow, mystical experiences, and then ultimately to higher states of consciousness? My colleague, uh, Igor Grossman, has produced quite a bit of good experimental evidence that sets decentering strategies, although this was prefigured in earlier work by the Berlin Paradigm. Igor Grossman has done some excellent work on showing that such decentering strategies are very relevant for bringing about wisdom. He has work on what he calls the Solomon effect. Let me describe it to you. You'll see why these disruptive decentering strategies can be so powerful. Get people to find a problem that's very messy, problematic, and that they're stuck in. Usually it's an interpersonal problem. Because as Sartre said, hell is other people. So is heaven, by the way, he didn't say that. But right, the, our deepest and most pervasive problems are generally problems with other people. Why? Because the thing that is, I've mentioned this before, that is most predictive of how meaningful your life is, is your meaningful relationships to others. The problem is human beings are endlessly complex. Okay. So you're describing this interpersonal problem and when people describe it, they are, of course, mesmerized by the mirage of their own egocentric perspective. They describe it without thought, default, from the first-person perspective. And they remain stuck. Remember this notion of stuckness. We'll come back to it again when we talk about Gnosis and Gnosticism. Then you get the person to re-describe the same problem from the third-person perspective. 
get them to decenter. What will often happen is they will break frame. They will realize the way in which they have been blocked, systematically locked, not solving their problem. They'll often have a central insight into how to resolve their problem. This is why it's called the Solomon Effect, because it tends to make you more wise. Think about the radical decentering that's going on in these awakening experiences, in these higher states of consciousness. Notice the systematicity of the error of egocentrism. It's not an error in this problem, or this problem, or this problem. It's a systematic error. That's why it's often described with metaphors of like being asleep. Because when you wake up, you have a systematic change in your consciousness. So what's happening in these higher states of consciousness, in these awakening experiences, you're getting a transformation, an intervention in systematic error. You're seeing through illusion precisely because of the powerful decentering that they are affording for you. Now that of course can be a powerfully traumatic experience. It can be a terrifying experience. Pursuing this in an autodidactic fashion, like all autodidactic, being a completely self-taught, right, is very, very dangerous. Autodidacts tend to get into echo chambers, vicious circles of their own egocentric entombment and entrapment. The Buddha gives a wonderful parable about this. He says, this is how you catch a monkey. You put some pitch on a piece of wood and it looks like something very shiny and tasty. It's, it's salient, it's attractive. And so the monkey grabs it with its hand and it gets stuck. And then it uses its other hand to try and free itself gets stuck. So it uses its right foot and then its left foot and then it puts its head its mouth on and then it's completely trapped and then the hunter comes and kills it. But decentering can alleviate that but if you are still pursuing this as an isolated individual as an autodidact Think about how ill-prepared, unskilled, untutored, and egocentrically you are trying to confront this radical transformation. That is why I think it is a very poor idea for people to take psychedelics without having them placed within a wisdom tradition in which they have a committed community that can give outside, decentering, and wise advice for how to process and handle these transformations. But once again, I point to you to an aspect of the meaning crisis. We have institutions of information we have institutions of knowledge, we have traditions, and we have respected experts 
give us guidance. We do not have this for wisdom. Now what is amazing, of course, is that some individuals like Siddhartha are able to do it as individuals. I want to point out two things about that. They deserve our admiration for successfully doing it as individuals, even though the Buddha had training from other people all along the way. But we should not take from that some kind of promotion of our North American individualism. Because the Buddha made it very clear that the Sangha, the community, was necessary for the cultivation of these transformative states. So, you've got this radical decentering. It can afford wisdom. And I want to try and show you how it's not just a perspectival knowing, it's not just a, a radical transformation in our salience landscape. This is a participatory change. This involves not just the machinery of cognition or the machinery of consciousness. This alters the machinery of the self. And therefore, it's also fundamentally a transformation of character. Remember, participatory knowing is knowing by conforming. Well, the radical at-oneness of these brings about a radical kind of participatory knowing. We'll come back to this when we return and talk about Plotinus. But right, it's so beautiful precisely because the coupling is so profound. And think about you're getting reciprocal rev revelation. The rever world is revealing itself more deeply, and more depths of yourself are being revealed in a coupled fashion. Well, that's, that, that's love. Love is mutually accelerating disclosure. If you want somebody, if, if you want to fall in love with somebody, although you shouldn't, you can never sort of pursue it that way, I think. You know, but what, what happens is if you get two people mutually disclosing from each other, in a coupled fashion. I, I honestly disclose something about myself and then you in response disclose. And then I pick that up and disclose more and then you disclose. That reciprocal, enhanced, mutual conforming engenders love. And love is something you know by participating in it, like your culture and your language. This is knowing by loving. Now what I want to suggest to you is that some recent cognitive science research can give us some understanding about why this decentering, this transformation of the sense of self, might be functional here. There's a lot of work. I would recommend to you the work of Sui and Humphrey from 2015, for example, showing that one of the functions of yourself, right, not, not your mind, but yourself, is to act as glue. This is a term they use, it's a metaphor. By making things relevant to myself, I can make them relevant to each other and glue them together. So. And, and, and I'm always doing that, right? I'm simultaneously gluing things together as I'm gluing myself together. 
What the self is, is a powerful set of functions for integrating, actually complexifying, processing. To say you're, you have a self is to say you have a systematic set of functions that are integrating, not homogenizing, complexifying things together. Now, if you remember, we talked about the work of Michael Anderson, acceptation, acceptation of the tongue. Here's a proposal to you. This powerful machinery that is central to your cognitive agency, your ability to make sense of the world by gluing the world together as you're gluing yourself together, this powerful machinery of complexification, of information, and information processing, be exacted. What if you were to take all that machinery of integration that you're using to integrate yourself and you turned it onto the world? What if you took all of that capacity to glue together? You exapted it, exapted it on the world. That would mean that machinery that was normally self-focused about integrating the self, and integrating its processing, could be used to achieve a de deeper integration of the world, to reveal deeper underlying patterns. Novark in 96, Glaxton in 2000, both suggest with argumentation and with phenomenological evidence, and many reports from people who are undergoing mystical experiences seem to corroborate this, that what seems to happen is all of the energy and machinery that has been bound up in our self has been turned onto the world. That's why the world comes alive to us, and we see so deeply into it. Imagine the intimacy you have in your self-knowledge being turned on to the world. So all of that energy that's stored up in your egocentric processing, all the time and the resource and all the, who am I? What, what's going on? Oh, how's it? Oh, how's this? Oh, relevant. Uh, all that, all of that. Imagine if you could take that machine and say, forget about John Verveke. For a while, even. Turn it on, the, turn all that massive machine onto the world. Radical, radical decentering, I propose to you, is doing exactly that. All of the time and effort and processing and skill and memory and structures that we've built into our ego adapted to disclose the world. And that, of course, would be coupled with a radical sense of moving into the being mode, and a radical sense of remembering who and what we really are. So, what I've tried to show you is we can understand the higher cognitive process at the psychological level in terms of 
this decentering, the acceptation of the self machinery, uh, flowing optimal grip, right? Enhanced awareness of invariance, both in the positive sense and in the ability that allows us to pick up on systematic error. We can see why this machinery is operating and producing the experiential profile it is producing. What about at the information processing level? I don't want to get very technical here, but this is the level at which we, we turn to work that's being done in machine learning, artificial intelligence, where people are actually trying to make machines that make sense of the world. And what kind of strategies do they come up with for trying to get the machines to be better learners? Well, one, one interesting thing is precisely the use of disruptive strategies. So Woodward et al. in 2014, this, uh, uh, this is a direct quote from them, right? They, they I'll give you the quote in a sec. They introduced randomization into a neural network. A neural network is a very powerful and cutting-edge form of artificial intelligence that in some important ways mimics how brains work. When you're training these neural networks, you don't program them. You train them to learn for themselves. But very often what you have to do is you have to introduce noise, entropy, randomness into these networks. In fact, he goes on to say that such randomness, quote, is essential aspect, an essential aspect of the self-optimization process. You have to, so what, these are not people doing psychology, these are not people trying to understand higher states of consciousness. What they're trying to do is they're trying to make neural networks that learn better that can self-optimize, and what they do, what they say is essential, that's the word he used, to this is disruption, disruptive strategy. Why? See, the problem with powerful machines is they pick up on patterns. And you say, well, but John, that's good. Isn't picking up patterns good? Well, remember all the stuff we've talked about about when we talked about implicit learning and picking up on only correlational patterns, not picking up on real patterns. See, the problem you face is you're always sampling from the world. So here's your experience, and then here's the world. And there's some pattern in your experience. And what you want to know is that is that pattern in the world or not? This is we invented a whole discipline to deal with this. It's called statistics. All statistics is basically this problem. How do I know if the patterns in my sample are the same as the patterns in the world? How do I know that, right? So, for example, if I was in class at U of T and I, let's say it's an even huge class, 500 students, Psych 100, and I say, how many people here think that student tuition should be reduced or schools should be free? And they all put up their hands. Should I then conclude, look, the overwhelming majority of people think that student tuition should be reduced. You'd say, that's ridiculous. And this is what you should say, because that is not a representative sample. The pattern there is all students. You need the sample to have the same patterns as the environment. So why is that relevant to disruption? Very often, what will happen with these neural networks is they will overfit to the data. They will too tightly, 
pick up on the pattern in the sample, a pattern that does not generalize to the rest of the world. So let me give you a, a way of understanding this graphically. So very often, right, we're, we're like, you've been probably taught this, right? You do a scatter plot, right? And then you don't typically draw a line like this to try and capture the data. Instead, what we typically do is a line of best fit, which might not touch any of the data points. This is called data compression, the line of best fit. Why do we do that? We do that in science because what we're trying to find is the function that will generalize, that will go to all kinds of different contexts, that will not be true just of this sample, but will be true of the population. But what the networks do is they do this. They overfit to the data. They track a function that perfectly describes the sample, but does not generalize to the population. Precisely because they are so powerful, they overfit. So what do you do? Well, you, you, can, you can throw some noise into the system. You can turn off, you can do dropout, you can turn off half of the nodes. You basically disrupt the processing a lot. Because what the disruption does is it prevents you from overfitting to the data and it actually allows you to compress. And what does the compression do? It allows you to find the real invariance, the real patterns that will generalize across all the varying contexts. Now, of course, right? You don't want to underfit. If you underfit, then you're not picking up on any patterns at all. So, notice again, these systems have to toggle. They have to toggle back and forth. They have to disrupt, right? Very analogous to breaking frame in order so they can make a better frame. And they're trying to find that sweet spot between disruptive variation and compression to detect real patterns that allows them to become good learners. So what we know is that Again, you have to have disruptive strategies set within powerful pattern detection. That's exactly what we're seeing at work, as I mentioned to you, in these people that are pursuing these higher states of consciousness. It's also, again, why belonging to a tradition that can afford powerful pattern detection, introduce disruption when needed, and guide you to help toggle to find the sweet spot is very, very important. If you want to be really good at jamming, you, right, you have to have the requisite skill. Jamming without jazz, just, sorry, jamming without skill just gives you junk, it doesn't give you jazz. So what's going on in the brain? So notice, notice what I'm showing you here. The machines are doing, right, the compression. That compression is, right, that toggling of attention that you see going on in the higher state of con. They're open, they're disrupting and then compressing and they're trying to find the huge invariance patterns, but they're trying to break frame and they're doing stuff that seems, I think, plausible to say is analogous 
to what we see going on at the psychological level within people. What about at the brain level? Well, this is where we have to turn to Newberg because he's done most of the work on tracking brains as people are having these kinds of experiences. And what you see is, right, initially you get increased activity in the frontal area and the parietal area. These are the two areas, the frontal parietal connection that is most associated with your general intelligence. Your ability to make sense and get an optimal grip on the world because that's what your general intelligence is. So the, initially you see these areas get hyperactive and then you see the opposite. You see them hypoactive. So, huge increase followed by a huge decrease. Now throughout, you have, throughout all of this, this is the frontal parietal, you have enhanced activity in the thalamus. This is the area of the brain that tries to integrate all kinds of different information together. The greater the shift, the greater the disruptive shift, the more powerful the awakening experience is. It's just like what's going on in insight. You initially bring all this machinery to bear to frame it, and then you have to massively disrupt it and break it. And then the system re-self-organizes, and that is precisely what's going on, I would suggest to you, in these experiences. So, What is happening in the brain, for example, in psychedelic experiences, is you'll often see this kind of shift. What's important, and there's a bunch of people doing work on this, metastability. So what, for example, psilocybin does, according to recent work done by Lordadel, is it increases metastability in the brain. So if you look at the work of Kelso, Tognoli, and others, what metastability is, is a state in the brain that's doing this complexification I talked about. So normally your brain is integrating things or segregating. Integrating, differentiating. But in psilocybin, what you get is a state called metastability where, and this is a state in which the brain is simultaneously integrating and segregating. It is massively complexifying. Please remember, complexification is with us when a system is both integrating and differentiating. When you went from being a zygote to being a biologically complex organism, your cells were differentiating into different types of cells, liver cells, eye cells, etc., but they were also integrating. You are complex because you're both highly integrated and highly differentiated. Complexification gives you emergent functions. It gives you new abilities. You can do things as a person, right, a biological human being, that you couldn't do as a zygote precisely because you're complex. Look, emergent functions come to the fact, because I'm highly differentiated, I can do many different things, but because I'm highly integrated, I don't fall apart as a system by doing these many different things. I get new emergent abilities. The way you grow and self-transcend as a system is by complexifying. Psilocybin, by putting you into metastability, 
right? Helps your brain complexify and come up with emergent abilities. It allows you to see the world, massive integration, in a grain of sand. Massive differentiation. So, I think what we can see here is, at least, highly plausible, and I'll come back to what I mean by that in just a minute, the count at the psychological level, at the machine processing level, and at the brain level of what is going on in these higher states of consciousness and why they are so powerfully optimizing your cognitive functionality. Once again, not to repeat this, but that, of course, has to be placed within proper sapiential context. You need a tradition and institutions, a committed community of cultivating wisdom. Now what about the prescriptive argument? I've laid a lot of the groundwork for this. Why should we listen to people who have been in this state? Why should this state serve as the justification for a transformation of your life? If someone comes up to you and says, I want to transform you, I want you to transform your life according to X, Y, Z, right? You need that claim justified, not just described and explained. You need it justified. What would make it a good thing to do? Are these states actually good guides for transformation? Well, in order to do that, I need to introduce a notion to you first. We're going to come back to this notion again when we talk about the nature of cognitive science. Although I've been exemplifying a lot of cognitive science to you throughout these previous videos. This is the notion of plausibility. We need to talk about this because plausibility is central to your notion of how real things are. Now, there's two senses of the word plausible. One is a synonym for highly probable. That's not the sense I'm using. I'm using it in the sense that Rescher and others made famous, where this means makes good sense. Stands to reason. Right? Should be taken seriously. Most of the time, and I'll make this point in detail in a few minutes, you cannot base your actions on certainty, but on, you have to rely on plausibility. Now, there's a lot of work on plausibility, and I'm just going to try to sketch to you what I think, or work I'm doing uh, with Leo Ferraro and Anderson Todd, about trying to integrate work by um, Lombardi and... Nashman and Sinatra from 2015, Kyle 2006, Milgram 1997, uh, Kitcher, Rescher, uh, I should say. There's just a lot of different work going into this. Here's what I think it is to make something plausible. First of all, it involves what Rescher calls trustworthiness. I think there's an important way in which trustworthiness comes about. You can see this in some of the work that Kyle has done on explanations we prefer. We regard a particular proposal or a construct or some 
way of trying to model the world as trustworthy if it's been produced by many independent but converging lines of evidence. Let me give you a clear, concrete example. Right. You will regard as more real information that comes through multiple senses as opposed to one sense. If I'm only seeing something, there's a good chance that it's an illusion or a delusion caused by the subjectivity of my seeing. But if I can see it and touch it and hear it and smell it, then the chance is that each one of those independent senses are right, producing an illusion is radically diminished. The fact that they all are telling me the same thing now, that doesn't give me certainty, but it gives me trustworthiness. It reduces the probability, that's what trustworthiness is, right? It reduces the probability that I'm self-deceived. Now, that's not the same thing as certainty, because unfortunately, for example, there is a form of schizophrenia in which people not only hear voices, but they see people attached to those voices, and when they reach out to touch the person, they get a tactile illusion. And it's very hard to convince those people that their illusions aren't real, precisely because this is highly trustworthy. This is why science likes numbers. We like numbers because they allow us to converge the senses. Look, you can see three, you can touch three. One, two, three. You can hear three. We like numbers not because we're fascists or something in science. We like numbers because numbers, quantification, help us to increase the trustworthiness of our information gathering. They allow us to reduce the chance that what we're getting, what we're measuring, what we're Modeling is being produced by self-deception. Is that enough for plausibility? I don't think so. So we're converging to some processing state here. But we also want something to be the case. Because we're not just looking backwards into how we got there. We're also looking forward what we can do with it. What we want, right, is we want a model that we can now apply to many new domains that will open up the world for us, that's multi-apt, right? This is like, again, taking a martial arts stance. I, I don't use this, but I'm taking this stance because I can quickly adapt it to many different situations. It's multi-apt, it's highly functional. So why do I want this, right? When I can use the same model in many different places, this is, I, I, I would argue, what people mean when they say a, a theory or a model is elegant. You can use the same model, right? It can, it's adaptive enough, it's multi-app that you can use it in many different places and apply it. So you have convergence for trustworthiness, but you have elegance for power, for multi-appness multi-apt application.
Is that enough? No, right? I, I, I think this state has to be highly fluent to you. Remember we talked about this. This has to be one that you can use readily, powerfully for yourself, that you can internalize. When you have this, when you have fluency, convergence, elegance, right, you need one more thing. You need a balance between the convergence and the elegance. If I have a lot of convergence without much elegance, that's triviality. The thing about trivial statements is not that they're false, they're true, but they're not powerful. They don't transform. Many times we reject things, we don't take them seriously, they don't make good sense to us precisely because they're trivial. What's the opposite? Very little convergence with a lot of promise of power. This is when things are far-fetched. Conspiracy theories have this feature. If they were true, they would explain so much. If we would just accept that the British royal family were lizard beings from outer space, we could explain so much of their behavior. But the problem is, although that would be a very powerful explanation, we have very little trustworthy evidence that that is in fact the case. So what we want is we want that, our, as Milgram says, our backward commitments and our forward commitment map. We only commit powerfully forward if we've got a lot of trust in the model that we've produced. When all of this is in place, right, I think we find what we're processing not only fluent, we find it highly plausible. When we have very deep convergence and very deep elegance and very like, efficient fluency, I think we then find the proposal profound. So you're saying, why are you going on about this? Because what I'm trying to show you is what the brain is doing is a, is performing a kind of evaluation of its, the plausibility of its processing when it's in a higher state of consciousness. See this model? What did we see? What did we see? We saw lots of things going into the higher state of consciousness. We saw de-automatization. Right? saw decentering. All of these things are strategies for reducing bias. Reducing bias. These are all strategies for reducing bias. Right? The automatization. Decentering. Fluency in processing. The state that you're in is a state of flowing optimal grip. It's intrinsically valued. It's optimizing for processing. And what's this affording, this state? 
Well, you're finding a nexus for a development. You're finding that systematic error. You're getting that complexification of your processing. So you're getting emergent new functions. You're getting the exaptation of machinery, the insight machinery, and the self-machinery into new abilities. You see what I'm arguing? Your brain is in a state in which it's getting information that's saying this processing is deeply trustworthy, deeply powerful, deeply fluent, therefore profoundly plausible. Plausibility is not certainty. But plausibility is what we have to rely on. What do I mean by that? You can't get certainty for almost all of your processing. You have to rely on plausibility all the time. We say, but I could turn to science. Science will give me certainty. Well, first of all, pay attention to the history of science. When has it ever done that? Almost all of the theories that have been proposed in science have ultimately turned out to be false in some significant or an important way. Science isn't believed in because it gives us certainty or facts. Science is believed in because it gives us self-correcting plausibility. Look, this is how, what, how, how do I decide what hypothesis to test? I don't test any hypothesis I come up with. I wonder if clipping my toenails will reduce famine in the Sahara. Let's test it out. I wonder if I gather enough frogs together, can I influence the Australian election? Let's test it out. Do you know how many hypotheses, and you say to me, that's what? Ridiculous. That's absurd. What you're saying to me is, those hypotheses don't make sense. They don't deserve to be taken seriously. What you're saying to me is, I reject them because they're implausible. Now I go into my experiment. I'm going to run an experiment in science. Well, what do I have to do? I have to control for alternative explanations. What we're always doing in science is inference to the best explanation. This goes to the work of Peter Lipton and others, right? Here's some phenomena. What I do is I, I have some candidate explanations for what's causing the phenomena. And then what I do is I put them into competition with each other. Which one of my hypotheses best explains it? And the one that best explains it, right, is chosen as what's real. But this, how do you make, how would you make this certain? The way you would make this deductively certain is you would have to check all possible explanations. How many possible explanations are there? An infinite number. You 
can't ever make science certain because you're always doing this. This explanation is only as good as the competition it beats. In science, you advance by coming up with plausible alternative explanations that you beat with yours. Science depends on plausibility judgments. It depends on plausibility judgments when we choose our hypothesis. It depends on plausibility judgments when we choose what variables we're going to control for in experiments. It depends on plausibility judgments once we're done and we have the data and we have to interpret it. What is the number of interpretations I can give for any data? Infinite in number. What do I do? I generate the most plausible interpretation. Before the experiment, during the experiment, and after the experiment, I'm relying on plausibility. Plausibility is indispensable. That's why your brain looks for it. So notice what we've got. This higher state of consciousness is an optimization of your processing. It brings about a state of high plausibility and it's relying on processes that are fundamental. Right? Because optimization has priority. I have to get my optimal grip before I can judge what it is. I have to zero in on the relevant information and have the right formulation of my problem before I can try and answer it. These higher states of consciousness, notice what I'm saying you have. They have indispensability because they run in terms of your plausibility machinery. They are optimal in terms of getting the best possible functioning for you. They are prior because they are fundamental to any and all of your cognitive processing. Getting this optimal grip, toggling between trade-offs, getting the best relationship between generalizing and discriminating. All of these have priority. These are why these states are such good guides. Again, if they're set within a set of sapiential practices, set within a sapiential tradition. Now, what, what I'm saying is these higher states of consciousness are great guides on how to transform yourself, how to cultivate wisdom, how to see through self-deception. Sometimes people come back from these states and they make pronouncements about the nature of the world. Sometimes these are bizarre. People will come back from DMT and tell them that hyperspace elves have told them that they should remain in forever um, inside their head or some bizarre stuff. Here's the thing you should know about. The propositions that people generate from this are largely useless. You can read these reports. People will have these higher states of consciousness and one group of people will come out and say, I know there's a God. Other people have these experiences and they come out and they're, they're filled with joy and they say, I know there's no God. Diametrically opposite. Because this isn't about propositional knowing. This is about participatory transformation. This isn't about getting secret metaphysical knowledge. This is about getting wise practices, wise transformation. Ultimately, what we need to do is to take the wisdom from these higher states of consciousness and get it into 
rational discourse with an independently established, via our best science, metaphysics, best science and philosophy. When we can put those two together, then we will have properly salvaged what these higher states of consciousness can afford for us. Do not confuse the rationality of wisdom with the rationality of knowledge. The next time what I want to do is, now that we've got a preliminary account of what these higher states of consciousness, what these awakening, what the awakening of the Buddha might have been plausibly like, we can return to what did he propose specifically, thereby finishing off the axial revolution, our discussion, I should say, of the axial revolution in India, and then we will return back to the Mediterranean world and look at what was happening there after Aristotle. Thank you very much for your time. Make some noise. Viviki John and Akira the Dawn. Is that meaning Christ is in chill by Joe? for you, baby. Hey, some noise! We got the right chat up on the screen. Bless the chat with your hieroglyphic appreciation. G-Man says, man, we want more, though. You're always so hungry. Yeah. Rustin Noah says, maybe the elves live in 4D world. Maybe they do. To honey, hey, Earth, what up? What up, Cindy Bailey? What up, XX Matic? What up, Night Dub? Jules Vaughn was cracking, shaky paper was cracking. Biological bootloader was cracking. Andrew Kamarumi says, Discard your thirst for books. Red King says, where do I get Meaning Wave posters? Little bro needs some ASAP. Uh, there's some in the store. We do need to get more up there, but there are a few in the store. Go MeaningWave.com. We need more posters, though. That's a good point. So much to do! More Meaning Wave posters. We need mugs. We need decals. People want all sorts of Meaning Wave activities. Yes, they do. Crisis in Shell will return next week. Fifteen songs in that one. 
Let's see, what did we learn today? What did what, what did we glean today, brothers and sisters? What did we glean from today's activities? Uh, let's see, Jules Vaughn is happy. Red King is happy. D-Man says, action figures. Don't forget about the action figures. Oh, no, no, don't you worry about that. Uh, Tahani says, the merch is sick. Get some. Listen to Tahani. Tahani, she wise. She knows what she's talking about. WebXP says, today I learned from... John Viveki, that gathering frogs can affect elections in Australia. I'm glad we were all paying attention. Angie says, thank you very time for your much. Red King says, only saw one, but thanks. Only one poster. Is there only one? We need more posters by Jove. More posters. All right. All right. All right. All right. I'm going I'm to get some posters up in the next 24 hours. What posters do we want in the store? What posters do we want in the store, brothers and sisters? What posters do we want in the store? You'll let me know. Of course, if you backed that Alan Watts campaign last year, you'll have got, you'll, some of you will have got amazing Alan Watts posters. And they are very choice. And Jesus Magnifico. Jules Vaughan says, I learned about tactile illusion. Yeah. Biological bootloader says, was that a hyper-productivity tag? Kira the Don taking pick and adding notes. Quite. Exactly. Uh, B. Athena, some claim that frogs affected the 2016 <laughs> election. <laughs> yeah, they did, didn't they? They really did. Uh, Shouts out to those frogs. <laughs> Sahani says, JBP posters. D-Man says, pattern recognition is all we have. And she says, bootstrap. Jammin' Royale says, I learned a new tune today that will be stuck in my head for weeks to come. I wonder what that was. I wonder what that was. Boom, boom. Cindy Bailey says, Akira shooting the shotgun poster. <laughs> yeah. Red King says, Jocko, JBP, Goggins, Watson, Rogan posters. Plus. Plus, Dan Frank says, I learned to beware of unearned wisdom. That one keeps coming up, doesn't it? You noticed? That's, that keeps popping up all over the place. Walking More Post says, Lo-Fi was on point tonight. Cindy Bailey says, Marcus Akira face poster. Sudratesh, Akira the Don head kettlebells. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do want some mini wave kettlebells. If anyone knows any kettlebell making people that want to collab. Holla. Holla. And uh, yeah, action figures too. We need action figures. And you know, that's. So much to do, baby. So many cool things to do. I'm very excited. Make some noise if you're excited for the future by Jove. What's up, Angie? God bless. says, is it unearned wisdom or just listening to your elders? Oh! Uh, I don't know, do we count clockwork elves as, as elders? Lehm. Lehm. You know, even, uh, you know, even Yoda had to go into training 
to learn how to convene with the dead, you know? He couldn't just straight up do that shit. He had to go into training with Qui-Gon Jinn. I don't know how he got into training with Qui-Gon Jinn because Qui-Gon Jinn was dead. So I don't know how Qui-Gon Jinn was able to instruct him how to deal with dead people whilst he was dead. I don't know. But, uh, you know, just saying. Word XP says, I liked it when John talked about science being a process for self-correcting plausibility. He said it's the best explanation, but isn't absolute truth. It helps you reject things that are not plausible. Major key. Charles Richards says, ooh, Roman busts of Akira and JVP. Correct. Yes. Yes. Dan Frank says, there is no God. There is a God. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Asatch64 says, love the Alan Watts waves. Those are awesome mixes. Hey, thank you. Who wants more Watts wave? Make some noise. Who wants more Watts wave? Much more epic activities coming up in the Meaning Wave universe. Of course, next. Next up in the MU is the debut album from Akira the Don and Graham Hancock by Joe. Perfectly timed as we enter the neo-psychedelic wholesome age. <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson wave, let's get it. Brian says, what's wave? Number one gym fan says, Stunks. Jules Vaughn says, yes. After six million years of boredom, the evolutionary ascent of our species from the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee, something Say extraordinary happened to us less than 100,000 years ago, which, by the way, is long after we'd become anatomically modern. It was a kind of emergence into consciousness. We became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. We became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. And this great change has been defined as the single most important step forward in the evolution of human behavior is intimately associated with the emergence of the great and transcendent rock and cave art all around the world. All around the world. Over the last 30 years, 
researchers have suggested an intriguing and radical possibility, which is that this emergence into consciousness was triggered by our ancestors' encounters with visionary plants. We became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. We became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. If you analyze the cave art, there are so many details that make it clear that this was an art of altered states of consciousness, of visions. Plants like the Amanita muscaria mushroom or psilocybin mushroom appear to have been directly connected with this sudden and radical change. And we became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. And we became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. And we became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. And we became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. Kira the Dunn Graham Hancock, that's out now on all streaming platforms. You can pre-order the album on Bandcamp. New single drops this Thursday night. The album's called The War on Consciousness. It is timely. Visionary class. Shamanism. The emergence of shamanism. Visionary class. The emergence of shamanism. Beauty wave exists. YouTube Hero Alex, do you have access to that wheel? The wheel has been in a wonderful job of, of giving us amazing mornings. Whoa! Jiggy. Woo! Oh, shoot. It's go fast. Do you know what that means? And that's kind of in the context of when we play Wheel of Vibes. That's the directive to speed up and keep speeding up. It looks like tomorrow morning on Twitch, we're doing speed. I never seen that movie, but I think the context of it, what's the story? He has to keep going fast, right? If he stops going fast, the bus blows up or something, right? I saw an episode of Father Ted where they parodied it, you know? They were, they were driving around a milk float and they just had, it had to keep going, right? Is that right? So uh, what we gonna be doing, baby, is we gonna start slow and we're gonna crank it up and we're just gonna keep going. And if we get like, you know, if we get 200 BPM, if we, you know, we get up to like 170, you just split it in half and go all the way around, just keep going, broom, broom, broom. Just keep accelerating. So it looks like that's what we're doing tomorrow. Uh-oh! 
Uh oh. Zahani says, Ong, Father Ted. Zahani, don't you live in Florida or something? How do you know anything about Father Ted? Walking Mall Poe says, lol, Father Ted. Suddenly people recognizing Father Ted in the, in the house. What do we call it? What do we call the um, go faster stream, the speed stream? Uh, it needs a t- something so that people know what it is. So I can give it a, you know, the title. This morning's easy. I just write Synthwave Special. All Synthwave set. Very easy. Sahani, Tennessee. I used to date a guy from Ireland who showed it to me. That's amazing. Back arse drank. Word XP says tomorrow morning will be epic. I'm afraid it will. I'm afraid we. I'm afraid there is no getting away from that. Asad64 says Sonic Stream. Jay Holbrook says Meaning Wave Turbocharged. D-Man Speed Racer set. Go Speed Racer, go! Zach Sounds have got to go fast. Morning show. Yeah. I could just speed up really gradually, you know, really gradually. I could go from like 73 BPM to 79. <laughs> You know how we do. We don't do things by halves over here at uh, Meaning Wave HQ. Not even slightly fucking around. 21. Nick Bioga says the tempo shendo. It's a good job we didn't hit slow, go slow. Some of these potentialities are really not good uh, outlines for a morning set, frankly. The slow down set just gets more and more lugubrious until everyone goes back to bed. Roomy Miscreations says, is the sound in Back to the Lobster Zoidberg from Futurama? Is it? That would be pretty neat. He is like a lobster, right? That would be cool. But you know, it could also just be like someone going boop, 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 or whatever. I don't know. Deep man says, "Will coffee be necessary?" That's like you, baby. I mean, that's up to you. Will coffee be necessary? Athena says, "Not even slightly fucking around." Sounds like a poster idea. You know, I do my best not to swear. But in my default state is I really like swearing. So it's very difficult for me doing all this broadcasting and not just swearing all the time. I honestly love swearing. I really enjoy it. But I'm aware that this is a family show. <laughs> Kinda. Anyway, so I do my best, you yeah? know? I do my best. But not even slightly fucking around 21 is, that's just the basis, you know? That's the foundation from which we operate. That's the foundation from which we operate. And speaking of which, it's time to get out of here. We know what we're doing tomorrow. We know what we're doing today. We did what we were going to do today. We executed today. It was glorious. Major, major, major League shouts out to Viveki, to Viveki John. Thank you, Viveki John, for your epic contributions and for allowing us to do this, you know, to play music with your speaking. And, uh, you know, enhance uh, meaning, you know, and find salience and all that kind of 
pajamas, you know? You know? Self-caressing plausibility and wise transformation and all that. Flowing optimal grip. How about that? Flowing optimal grip. Here on the stream of meaning. Let there be a goodbye. Three, two, one. Bye. Meaningwave.com. Sponsored by Meaningwave.com. Home of epic garments, also lyrics. Saying goodbye screen activated. <laughs>